You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. All right. Well, we were uh, just talking about how I need a fanny pack. Does anyone have an extra fanny pack? Usually you put the little, the little back mic thing on a fanny pack. Actually, you don't put it on a fanny pack. You put it on a belted shirt. But I tried to wear this cute tunic. Didn't work. That's for all the women in the room. I would like to say, though, it is wonderful to see you. My name is Kara Meredith. Um, I was able to join you in April this last year, and it's great being back and being among familiar faces. But I more importantly want to congratulate all of you for showing up, even though it was a snowpocalypse, and for being here on Daylight Savings Day, um, otherwise known in my house as Daylight, because we have a three and a five-year-old who still got up way too early. So I've already read half a book because it's been one of those days. There you go. Well, this week um, and in this series, you have been talking about outcasts, and I've just got to warn you, we are about to enter into one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. But first, a short story. Earlier this summer, uh, the boys were with a babysitter. It was uh, probably the middle of June or July. And I found myself at one of Seattle's great public libraries. Anyone else fancy the library? It's just me and two others, three, good, good. I was at the library working and it was a Thursday. And I remember just looking around the library going, "I, I need more. I need more than just right now. And so I looked on the website of this local um, Episcopal church where my kids were signed up to go to VBS, Vacation Bible School, a couple weeks later. And and in in less than half an hour, there was a Thursday Eucharist service. And I said, I'm going. I'm driving to St. Andrews. And I've been there almost every Thursday since. And last week when I was there, I said, can I steal one of the Thursday bulletins? Because every week, we go through the exact same thing. And yet, it is the holiest of times together. And this little group, there's usually not more than eight or ten of us, but we enter into the prayers of the people, as just happened here. We, we share, we learn about the saints, and then we read these prayers, and then we go and we gather around the table at the very end. And I always hope that I am the third person from the right, although lately I've begun to seat myself at the end so that I can listen to this third person, Because the third person has my favorite of all the prayers. And this is what it says. It's going to come up on the screen. But it says, living among us, Jesus loved us. He broke bread with outcasts and sinners, healed the sick, and proclaimed good news to the poor. He yearned to draw all the world to himself, yet we were heedless of his call to walk in love. Then the time came for him to complete upon the cross the sacrifice of his life and to be glorified by you. This last week I was the eighth person, which meant I didn't get to read. Dang it. But for some people like me, that means I need to hear it more than anyone else. So the third person in this week was Kathy, who is 84 years old. And I stood there at the end, and I listened as Kathy prayed this paragraph of a prayer about the Jesus who gives 
the most extravagant of loves, a love to outcasts, to the outcasts among us. He said, man, that's us. But that's also where we are this week and in this series is we're further examining and entering into the extravagant love of Christ who loved the outcasts among us. So I don't know about you. Sometimes I can think about my life and I can say, oh yeah, I've been an outcast. In the fourth grade, I got glasses and people called me four eyes. And then in the seventh grade, I got this really cool pair of guest overalls from the local consignment store. And all the kids started singing, Old MacDonald had a farm because my maiden name is, you guessed it. No, you didn't guess it. <laughs> Husband, what is my maiden name? MacDonald. It was ill-fitting back in uh, the late 80s slash early 90s to try and wear overalls and have said last name. But did that really make me an outcast? And I could go through, but as we enter into today's text, which is John 4, the truth is that in my privilege, I don't know if I've ever really known what it means to be an outcast. I don't know if I've really known what it means to be an outcast because of the color of my skin, which was the case with this woman. I don't know if I've really known what it means to be an outcast because of my gender, even though, and I say this lightly, that many among us could have been very impacted by the Me Too movement even of the last month. And I don't know if I've really known what it's been, what it's like to be an outcast when my past hasn't labeled me an outcast. Because those three things, this is, what, this is who Jesus meets in this text. So bear with me, because here, I told this to Kurt. I said, Kurt, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a tricky passage. It's like 30 verses long. And if you're a preacher man or a preacher lady, you do not preach on 30 verses and at least exegetically tell, read the verse and then teach about it. Because I'd be up here for like 39 hours and y'all don't want that. You want to go hibernate in your houses because it's quasi-snowing outside. <laughs> So here's what we need. I need you to just stay with me. We're going to read them all at once, and then we're going to unpack them. So pretend like this person reading up front who is me is really exciting as she reads. So here we go. Text is up here. It's John 1, 4, excuse me, 1 through 30 if you want to actually read it in print in a Bible in front of you. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although it was not Jesus himself, but his, his disciples who baptized, technically, he left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. Remember that. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Note that. And Jesus, tired by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. Note that. This is so good, you guys. I'm like, I'm going like this inside. I'm getting all wiggly because I want to unpack it now and I can't. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Note that. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Super note that. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman, 
of Samaria. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flock drank from it? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I give or will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. Boom, note that. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one, the man that you are with now, is indeed, in fact, not your husband. What, uh, and what you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the father, father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks as, the, as these to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he. First of the I am statements, although not technically an I am statement. The one who is speaking to you, just then his disciples came, they were astonished that he was speaking to a woman. But no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. All right, we're done. It's pretty, it's pretty rad, isn't it? I need a better word than rad, but I did ask for a fanny pack when I first got up here, so I guess it goes together. The first thing to know is this, without step-by-step, verse-by-verse unpacking, we see at the very beginning, if you look at the first slide, we see that her ethnicity automatically made her an outcast. So already we learn at the beginning, Jesus has traveled through Samaria, and that is something to note. Were his disciples with him? No. His disciples were not with him because for pious Jews, because Jesus was a Jewish man, his disciples were Jews as well. For Jews, they did not purposefully travel through Samaritan, Samaria, excuse me, but they actually automatically, they avoided it because Samaritans were considered unclean to the Jews. Because of a war that had happened 500 years before, 
And because the Samaritans then mixed, the Assyrians mixed with the Jewish people and became the Samaritans, because this happened, they were considered by the Jews to be half-breeds. We would think of those people, or we would call those people biracial today. So for pious Jews, even though it was the shorter route to go through Samaria, they avoided it all together. They said, we're gonna take the longer route around because if we go through Samaria and we come in contact with a Samaritan, with a half-breed, then we will be unclean. They did not want to be unclean. So already her ethnicity has made or is making her an outcast. So much so that if a Samaritan and a Jew were walking down the street and I am a Jewish person and my shadow crosses with a Samaritan shadow, I am considered unclean. It wasn't even just touching them, but if our Peter Pan shadows touch, we are made unclean. So think about already. I have a friend who said the, pecu- the particularities of this story matter. If they did not matter, John wouldn't have written them. But the particularities matter. She is an outcast because of her ethnicity, and that matters. And so John, the writer, names it. Instead of avoiding Samaria, instead of avoiding or becoming defiled, Jesus just goes and he shows up. He sits down at the well. One thing I read this morning, I didn't even know I was going to read it in this little Jesus book I was reading in the morning. But this morning I read that actually when Jesus went and he sat at the well and when he said, draw me a drink, He was essentially proclaiming marriage, or that's what it would have communicated to her. Because back in that day, 2,000 years ago, there wasn't actually a bucket that was sitting there in the well. We think of wells today, and granted, we can just turn on our tap. But when I think of a well, I think about walking up to a well and then going and, I don't know, cranking one of those little cranky things. What is that called? Help a sister out. A handle? <laughs> Cranking a, crank, a handle, and then up comes my bucket. But in that day, everybody had their own bucket. But since Jesus' disciples had gone off elsewhere to get food and water, they had the well bucket. So here is Jesus and the physicality of who he is, of his, not just his deity, of him being a God, but of him being human comes out. He is thirsty. So he goes and he sits at the well, thus communicating, I need a drink. And the only person to walk up to him in the middle of day, you took note on that, at noon, high noon, was a Samaritan. When she saw him, or when he saw her, what he should have done is walked at least 20 feet, 20 feet away. That was the custom. But instead, he stayed there and he asked for a drink. And that's the point at which we get to the second thing. She makes a statement. She knows her stuff. She knows the cultural norms and values of the day. And we see that her gender automatically made her an outcast. 
What does she say to him? She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Just FYI, buddy. Pointing out the obvious here. We've already been over the fact that her ethnicity makes her an outcast, but she is a woman. And a woman in that place in time was of value if she could have babies, if she could procreate. She was of value if her father took ownership of her. She was of value if a man wanted her and if she took a husband. But otherwise, she was not of worth. And further, the fact that she was a Samaritan woman, if she was already here on the totem pole of society, she's already looking like an outcast of outcasts, she is a Samaritan woman, which puts her even lower. Back in the day, women, when they menstruated once a month, they were considered unclean. According to the law of the Pharisees, the Pharisees said, well, actually, Jewish women, you're unclean once a month. Samaritan women, you are unclean 365 days a year. No one should touch you, for you are untouchable. You are not worthy. Why did she go to the well at noon? She went because she was an outcast of outcasts. She could not go in the early hours of the morning when all the other women went and socialized together because she was not welcome even with them. So she went and she drew water by herself at the hottest hour of the day. And here today when she shows up is a man, a Jewish man, who is asking her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink. Now pause for a second. We're mostly talking about her in this first part, but think about who Jesus is. Jesus went out of his way. Jesus is God, right? He's God and he's man. Jesus went out of his way knowing who he was going to come in contact with. And he gave her purpose. Has Jesus ever gone out of his way to give you purpose? Think if you were the woman in that situation. Think about what Jesus is communicating about himself and about who God is with his intentionality, with showing worth and dignity to she who has been thought of as the lowest, the most undignified, the most unworthy. You have value and you have worth. And I need something from you. That's different. That's different. But here they are at this well. And although Jesus should have backed off, he didn't. He continued to enter into conversation with her. 
So they begin to almost volley back and forth. We're not going to go over those exact parts. But in that, uh, she again, um, sorry, I'm almost losing my place. Hold on. Uh, she gives him a drink, and he begins to hint at the greatest drink of all. She points out the obvious, um, you don't have a bucket to get this greatest drink of all that you speak of. Uh, so she begins to school him on the history of the well, Jacob's well. You can go back and you can read about that. But obviously, she knows her theology, even if, according to the Jews, her theology is mixed up in idolatrous. She knows her stuff because she knows the significance of the well. So Jesus then, he makes his statement for the first time. He says, he makes the first of I am statements. And he says, I am the water. I am the greatest drink of all, the greatest heart vacuum filler that you'll ever have. But she doesn't necessarily get it. Jesus is like the king of metaphors. He's like, somebody asks him a question. They're like, hey, who's God? And he's like, well, there once was a field filled with wheat. <laughs> yep, not the answer I was looking for. Who's God? So he's kind of speaking around metaphors, and he's getting to the point, and sure, we can look at it with our super smart eyes, and we can go, oh, Jesus, you were saying that you are the living water. But she's not there yet. And instead, he meets her where she's at. She doesn't understand the point of the metaphor, so she begs for this magical water. Well, yeah, I want it. She doesn't want to have to return to the well again. Why would she want to have to return to the well when every day when she returns to the well at high noon, it's just a reminder of who she is not? Yeah, give that to me. She wants the elixir. But finally, at verse 16, Jesus tries another tactic, and this time he reminds her of the final nail in the coffin, that final thing that makes her an outcast of outcasts. If she was an outcast because of her ethnicity and her gender, she is an outcast because of her past. So he says to her, You've had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now actually is not your husband. Her past automatically makes her an outcast. I think her response is so interesting. She's kind of like, yeah, I know, obviously. How many of us we know the stuff we need to deal with. One theologian said, he has exposed the sin which sin itself seeks to hide. He has exposed the sin which sin itself seeks to hide. So often we can look at people around us. We can look at the outcasts around us. Well, this is your problem. Yeah, I know. Do we really need to be the ones to point it out? For her, five husbands. All she wants is love. In that day, men did not need a reason to marry and divorce another woman. They did not need a reason 
whether they had a reason or no reason at all to divorce her, they could divorce a woman. They could take on multiple wives. She has then been through five husbands and the man she's living with now that she's sleeping with now is not her husband. She has a hole in her heart. We can look at that ancient quote from Blaine Pascal. If you look right here, there's a God-shaped vacuum, a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man or woman, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus Christ. And this right here, she already knows where she stands. But can I just have love? Can I just love and be loved in return? And in, but in this way, how is that any different from us? If this God-shaped vacuum lives within us, then what are we doing? What are we filling our God-shaped vacuum with? We fill it with food. We fill it with drink. We fill it with working and working and working so we can have more money in the bank, so we can have more validity. Just this last week, I got an email from Kurt, your pastor. I didn't know if I was going to include this. But Kurt and I met up a couple weeks ago, and we're talking about ministry. We're talking about my book. We're talking about his school, which is crazy. And finally, Kurt writes me an email, and this is what he says at the very end. And I wrote it down, and I put it on my wall. I put it on a message on Facebook, which obviously matters exactly. You're picking up what I'm putting down. Let me tell you what Kurt said. He said, I'll pray for you as you prep this sermon and as you lean into the writing process for this book. It is going to be great all caps lock, gonna, G-O-N-N-A. But it doesn't define you. May your identity be shaped by the God who sees you and by the Jesus who works with you. If I can just have validation with the words that I write, with the language that I speak, then I will be filled if I can just have validation by the long hours I work so that I can get more money in the bank account so that I don't have to fear this happening, then I will be filled. If I can just have the degrees behind me, if I can just feel loved by the inanimate object before me, I don't have my cell phone up here, but if I can just feel loved by that, then I will be filled. Was she any different from us in wanting and desiring that this God-shaped vacuum be filled in her heart? I don't think so. So when he points that out to her and when she deflects, one writer, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, who teaches over at Quest Church and at Seattle Pacific University, she said she deflects and she begins to talk theology because she knows her stuff. And how often do we do that as well? Well, sure, I've got this sin in my life, but hey, let's talk about women in ministry. Should that weird lady be up there actually talking to the people out here, especially to the men folk? 
well, yeah, but what about, I don't know, are all people really in? Does God really love everyone? Well, yeah, but. I mean, we are avoiding what's really going on. The vacuum that's really open for everybody to see. Let's just make it actually about this. Not the point. And so that is when Jesus finally responds to her with one last thing. And I put up here the message version of this. I love how Eugene Peterson says it. But here, I believe it's verses 23 and 24. He begins to talk about worship, he being Jesus. And he said, here is actually what really matters. It's not about who you are, and it's, it's who you are, excuse me, and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. This is the one thing. This is what counts. This is what it's all about. It's not about what we sometimes make religion or Christianity or faith or whatever other word we use. It's actually about worship because this worship is what fills the God-shaped vacuum that exists in every single one of our lives, in each one of our outcast lives. Earlier we sing, Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we love you. You are the one our hearts adore. I'm pretty sure they stole that directly from John 4 right here. But as I was sitting right there, I said, I said that's it. That we, said, that we say, Jesus, we love you. And we begin to sing that. But the other part of it is that there is this mutual dance that begins to happen back and forth. So it's almost as if we change the words. And just as we sing, Jesus, we love you, Jesus is singing back to us. Oh, how I love you. And he's singing to the very hearts and souls of who we are. It's not about us first, but it's about him proclaiming truth of who he is, about how much he loves us, and about how this love changes us that matters more than anything, that makes us sing back to him. I love you, I love you, I love you. Oh yeah, me, the human, I love you too. I love you, and it makes me love you. And that is the authenticity, the real worship. So what then is Jesus' response? We've seen it throughout this whole time, but he pursues her. He dignifies her. He engages with her as the serious theologian that she is. He says, yes, you have value and you have worth. And these particularities, they matter. But here is what matters the most. 
this heart of worship. He responds purposefully. He responds in his humanity. He embraces her. He does not have a serious reaction to her, but just as he had space for her to be who he was, to be who she was, he wasn't taken off guard. So their exchange becomes mutual, which is the whole point of us entering into a relationship with the God who loves us. He didn't hold power over her. He didn't then say, you need to change in order to come to me. Instead, she left feeling wholly empowered, so much so that she drops her bucket. She runs off. She's saying, I'm not sure if the guy I just met was the Messiah, but he might just be. Because this interaction that I just had with this man changed me. So what interaction with you that you have been having with Christ, excuse me, has changed you? And how might that matter for the outcasts among us? One last slide, a week ago, I was home with Can and our older son, our five-year-old, and I said, Cannon, can I share this story? A couple days ago, but Cannon is learning how to write his words, to use his words. He's super excited about letters. The other day, he's, he said, Mama, does T-H-E-C-A-N-R-Z-X-W spell something? What does it spell? And I'm like, the Cannon's here. No. Keep trying. Sound it out. It's called a vowel. <laughs> but last week, I was actually getting ready to speak to some women at a Jesuit parish in Capitol Hill, and so James had our younger son, Theo, and I had Cannon, the five-year-old, and he was lying on the kitchen floor with a pen and a paper in his hand. And he said, Mama, how do you spell, I wish I had dark skin? I sat there staring at the meal plan board that I was lying out for the week. I said, oh, baby, I, W-I-S-H, and I spelled it out. And James and I continued to go on through the rest of the week, saying, how do we respond to this? to our child who already feels in between, who already has a desire and a want for something that does not encompass what his skin looks like now. For him who, according to Jewish standards 2,000 years ago, would have been called a half-breed. And yet I look at that and I say the particularities matter even when he feels in between, even when he feels like an outcast. He is loved for exactly who he is, for Christ sees that. Jesus, give me the strength as a parent and as a human to honor the particularities of my son 
as he begins to grapple and wrestle with feelings of being in between. It is something that I am just now beginning to learn about, but I look at this text Jesus, you see him who already feels like an outcast, who already feels in between. And yet, how do you respond? What does this have to teach us about how then we are to respond? Whether to the outcasts around us or to the outcasts that we are. Might we take a hint from the Jesus who pursues, who gathers in, who calls all worthy and dignified with all their particularities in tow.